But in a certain way, the the thing that for me is really most important about it, if mm -hmm. you consider the possibility of rebirth, is how we live now, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it, it it extends the impact that we have, how we live now, how we treat one another, how we treat our planet. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Barbara Graham and Yu Delahunty. Barbara is an author, essayist, and playwright. Her essays and articles have appeared in many magazines, including Glamour, O, The Oprah Magazine, and Vogue. She is the author of several books, including the national bestseller, Women Who Run With the Poodles, and the New York Times bestseller, Eye of My Heart, and her 2022 novel, What Jonah Knew. Her plays have been produced at the WPA Theater in New York and at theaters around the country. Yu Delahunty is the number one New York Times bestselling author, a National Magazine Award-winning editor, and a certified meditation teacher with more than 25 years of practice. He served as an editor of Sports Illustrated, editor-in-chief of Utney Reader, and AARP, the magazine. Yu is the co-author of Sacred Hoops and Eleven Rings, co-authored with Phil Jackson, as well as the editor-at-large for Mindful Magazine. Together, Barbara and Hugh live in the Bay Area. Hello. It's so great to be with friends again. Hi, Sharon. So so nice to be with you. Hi, Sharon. Hi there. It feels like so long since we've been in the same physical space, which of course is true. Uh, and I've known you through it, many outs and iterations of your Buddhist practice and also of your travels. I have a vague meeting, Barbara, of, uh, remembrance, Barbara, of, being on the phone with you, you called me. Maybe you were moving from Minneapolis to DC. Right. Was that, that it? Well, we by way of New York for about okay. six months. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, well, New York yeah, seems right. You know, <laughs> DC and Minneapolis are both a little off. <laughs> like, I I think we've seen each other in many different cities yeah. <laughs> around the country. We haven't made it globally yet, but but around the U.S. Yeah. I think that's true. And, uh, can you tell me, each of you, uh, starting with Barbara, something about your your meditation practice? Sure, I love to. So, my my own Dharma path has been something a little bit long and winding. When I was a teenager, I devoured The Way of Zen by Alan Watts and uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, and the teachings inherent in both of those books really resonated with me in a way that much more so than what I was learning in the Reformed Jewish temple where my family belonged. And I always had a bit of trouble with the notion of the chosen people. So, but then life intervened, marriage, motherhood, divorce, remarriage, and career until I was around 40 and living in New York and through friends was reintroduced to the Dharma. And my memory of the first night at Ethical Culture Society on the Upper West Side, uh, a friend took me to hear, took me and Hugh actually, to hear Sogyal Rinpoche. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the Four Noble Truths and he talked about life's inherent suffering and dissatisfaction with the first noble truth. And so for me, this felt like this incredible moment of awakening, of, of recognition, and that it wasn't just me who experienced pain and suffering, because in my family, it wasn't acceptable to express sadness or fear. We were supposed to be pretend to be happy mm -hmm. all the time, even though nobody was. So this led me at a very early age to think that I was crazy, that there was something inherently wrong on, with me. But um, on that very rainy night on the Upper West Side, I got 
that it wasn't just me. It was the human condition, and I felt not alone anymore. And it was kind of as if some dark cloud I'd been living under my whole life just began to lift, and I started meditating and attending talks and retreats with many Dharma teachers, including you and Charlotte Beck, and uh, a number of teachers in a number of different traditions. And I really felt like I'd come home and that the spark that I experienced as a kid, as a teenager, was finally given oxygen and and flourished. And, and then Hugh and I moved to D.C. in the late 90s and became deeply involved with IMCW, the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, where Tara Brock is the primary teacher. And we started a Kalyanamita group uh, in the year 2000 that's still going very strong. So the Dharma, different teachers, different flavors, but the mm-hmm. same essential teachings that in some way I feel like they rewired me and and kind of reshaped how I see the world. I think it was really so important that you, you for the DC community as well, that you go to DC. I remember, I think, must have been that cool with um, you when you were in Minneapolis moving to DC. And I asked IMS if they had any addresses of people who might be interested in coming together to meditate. And they said, they sent me like a a mailing list, you know, but it was like stickers for a mailing list. And you said uh-huh. to me, I guess I can always throw a party, you know, like right. peel them off. <laughs> and you, what about your practice? Oh, uh, well, I, I, I was listening to Barbara. I, I was really in, inspired by that meeting with Sogyo, but from a different way. I was kind of, you know, I'd read a lot about, you know, meditation and Zen and everything. And I, but I had a certain bias towards it, I think, which I didn't, wasn't even aware of. And when I saw Sogyal walk out on the stage, who was like very sophisticated, Oxford educated, you know, Sorbonne educated, I was really taken, it kind of broke down all of my kind of, my bias about, you know, woo-wooism and, uh, you know, and meditation. And I really got inspired to start teaching, uh, to study meditation. And it just happened that there was, a, t- uh, a person who was a student of Joko Beck, who was in our building, mm. and I decided to go, and she was teaching a, a weekly meditation class, I decided to go, and the first day I went, everybody in the group quit, <laughs> <laughs> and including Barbara, and, uh, and, they, and, I, and the teacher said to me, okay, Hugh, if if you're really interested in this. I want you to meditate every day for six months and come to class every week for six months. And I guarantee you that the group, the Sangha will form again. And it did. And I did that. And, um, and then what happened? And then Joko became my teacher. And what I wanted to find out from Joko, I was at the time, I was kind of in a creativity box. I felt that I wasn't, I wanted to get back to that feeling that I had as a kid of, uh, you know, creating anything. And I think I was just in a state of burnout or something. And I asked Joko about creativity and meditation. And she said to me, you have to trust in the present moment and experience life just as it is. And your innate creativity will inevitably emerge. Mm. At first, I was skeptical about this, and so. But years later, after practicing Zen meditation, all of a sudden, I found that what she said was true. That all of a sudden, there was a real loose loosening up for me of my creativity, and I uh, gears started kind of emerging again. And um, and then I went on to study other forms of meditation, of vipassana, and study with you and Jack and other people, Anajya Shanti. And um, and then I decided to become a meditation teacher myself, which I studied with Mark Coleman and uh, Martin Ilward, mm-hmm. and uh, now teach um, courses or classes and workshops in meditation and creativity. So when you're on uh, when you're in Europe for this whole next period of time, do you teach online? I'm not planning to teach during that time. Uh-huh. I'm doing well, that kind of creativity life. too, living a good life. Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
So I, when I think of each of you, I think of you as people that have brought your passions even more to life with your spiritual practice instead of that, you know, kind of dull uh, caricature we might paint in our minds, you know, others may paint of us. Um, having gotten into spiritual practice, it's all kind of apathetic. And I once heard um, Jack's aunt, I think, was on the phone with him. We were at IMS in Barry, and, and he was very excited about something. And she said to him on the phone, would they give you an extra raisin or something? Ah. You know, I was like, oh, that's the image, of course. It's like aesthetic and bad, and, you know. Yeah. So I wonder if you could, uh, each of you starting, uh, maybe with you this time, if you could speak something about the intersection of creativity and mindfulness. Oh, my. Well, I mean, I could talk about my my experience, which was when I uh, was studying with Jogo, I, I found um, – after a certain bit of time that I was able to allow ideas to float rather than trying to control my mind and, you know, focus my mind in a certain way. I was allowed to let, I was allowed to let my ideas, what I call floating consciousness and let the ideas come out. And what, one of the things that, that creativity is all about is about touching into your subconscious and allowing it to come forward and sometime and meditation can be a real uh real help in that direction and and it certainly was for me and uh now that i you know as i'm in the early stages of a writing or something writing i was doing that i will just allow the ideas to float into my head and just sit with them and look at them in all kinds of different ways and um and i i try to kind of let my logical or rational mind kind of take take a back seat for a while and uh, i don't let it come forward until i'm in the kind of editing stage of of the writing in like because the early stage is to allow the unconscious to bring forth you know what your you know what your truth is mm. And there's something about that that's so subtle, too. You know, it's, it sounds like, oh, yes, of course, but it's deeply subtle and refined because, like, Barbara, I've lived with you, both of you, for a while, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen how much hard work it is. And I've seen the restrictions in a way, like, okay, I'm not going to talk to anyone until noon, or okay, I'm not going to do this until that, or I'm not going to work right. on that until I finish that. And right. It's a lot of work. And so maybe you could say something about the work and what brings it to be joyful. Yeah. Or just never get to be joyful. Well, yeah. I have, I can say that the hardest thing I ever did was writing this novel, What Jonah Knew, and it was also the most fun I ever had. Um, and, you know, for me, writing, and, and for other people, it's other things. Creative expression can take any form. Mm -hmm. It's about bringing curiosity and openness and this a sense of receptivity that Hugh was just talking about mm -hmm. to whatever to whatever you're doing. Because, and I found that when I was writing the novel, I, I I would have outlines, but then I would have to let go of the outlines, let go of everything not know what was going to happen next. It was really like meditation mm -hmm. in that sense. And sort of, and, and it is subtle, but there's a kind of receptivity um, that can happen when you simply are curious and open and allow yourself to not know mm -hmm. what's mm -hmm. happening next and of course there were times I felt like tearing my hair out and you know but often I would just that didn't happen that much I would not know and then sort of stand up from my desk go for a long walk take a very long hot shower which I can't do now because of the drought in California but it wasn't as bad then and um, somehow something would get released when I let go and was okay with not knowing. And then the book would tell me what to do next. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, it really, for me, was a form of practice um, more than anything and more than I expected, surprising in that way, because I'd never written anything. I had written plays, but I'd never written anything for a very long time 
quite this long mm-hmm. that was as involved and, you know, all these different characters and voices. And so um, it required a lot of patience, but it was, there was so much joy because then suddenly I would know what to do next when I didn't. And, and that's where the joy for me really came. Where I, whereas I think if you try to script everything and outline everything in advance, it becomes like painting by numbers. Well, the, the prospect of writing fiction scares me and the prospect of, well, you have to create a world, you know, you're creating people. It's like you're adopting a family and they may be with you for a long time. <laughs> and prospect of writing poetry is completely out of my my range. But, I feel, but you, know, you, like write, when I, but you but you write beautiful books. Thank that, you. That that serve so many people so deeply. So it's and that that's another. I mean, that's just as creative. It's whatever you know. That's I mean, some people bake bread, which I think a lot of people did in the pandemic, including <laughs> me for a while, until I decided I was either going to write the novel or you know try to become a better baker. And <laughs> I wrote I wrote the novel, but <laughs> well, here this goes to a question very um, relevant to teaching because in teaching something as I do so often something like loving kindness, I feel like I confront people's strong belief that, although maybe quiet belief, that it can't be trained. You know, that we have a gift or we don't have a gift. And if you don't have a gift, you're out of luck. Mm-hmm. And when I hear something about like a workshop on creativity, I would think about some of the many cultural assumptions that might be made. Like I did, I um, created this workshop once where, a very wonderful writing teacher from the West Coast came to my house and uh, she was teaching a group of us, maybe there were 10 of us, um, different principles of writing. And from my meditation practice, I have a strong, strong belief in like a path. There's a path, there's a craft. We can get better at what we do. It depends on how we pay attention, depends on what we're paying attention to, that these things are actually trainable, not in a mean sense or a, uh, you know, mechanical sense, but we can allow spaces to emerge that we have been holding back from in the past. Mm-hmm. And she she highlighted things like the first sentence of your paragraph needs to be strong. You know, and certainly the first sentence of your chapter needs to be very strong. So we played around with that, and that was fine. And then uh, at some point she said, now we're going to write a poem. And I thought, oh, no, I can't write poetry. And then uh, one of the people... Someone not in the class, but someone close to many of us in the community was going through a terribly hard time psychologically then. And a couple of people wrote poems about his mental state and the anguish that brought up. And, and they were beautiful poems. And Joseph finished a poem he'd started in college, like 30 years before. And my poem was something like a cat in a hat. <laughs> after a rat. And I was like, I said, oh, God, this is not so bad. Uh, and I never got over it. So I'm turning to you as a teacher about both that larger principle of training capacities we tend to take for granted or assume we don't have. And what do you do when you confront that in a student? What it really is about youth creativity and what I usually try to teach people and, I, and to do is to get to address their fear. And there's, mm-hmm. there's, um, there's a novelist named Stephen Pressfield who says that um, – you know, the big secret that professional writers know that amateur wannabe writers don't know is that um, the writing, you know, writing is not the hard part. It's sitting down to write. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the sitting down to write means that because of the resistance and the resistance is the fear people and it comes in all kinds of different forms and in that respect it's like similar to meditation in that as you're well you're meditating all of these you know fears and concerns and worries and whatnot come up for you and you have to learn how to be with them and not you know and not kind of trying to resist them or push them away and uh the same is true with with creativity and um and the way you know the way it emerges, and I um, I once did a um, I once did a workshop at Spirit Rock on creativity, and I was um, it was a, a, a workshop that included both you know, the the class was being taught by Anna Douglas, and she um, 
was it was both writers and painters. And I had studied studied painting, and I wanted to be with the painter group. And what I discovered was, um, and I was it was a different kind of painting for me. I was used to doing figure drawing and all that stuff, and this was spontaneous painting. You know, just paint anything mm-hmm. and see where it goes. And um, and so I I had a really hard time with that. And then all of a sudden, I just decided to paint a nude because I knew how to paint nudes. The teacher, her name was Barbara Kaufman, came to me and she said, okay, what are you going to do next? Mm. And I said, well, I thought I'd paint a beach scene. And she said, what's the dangerous thing you could do? And and what I said, well, I could paint um, a man next to her and da-da-da-da-da. And so I did that. And then she said, what? Okay, what's the dangerous thing you could do? And so I kept, she kept pushing me to paint, you know, kind of wilder and wilder and wilder scenes. And in the middle of it, what I discovered was all of a sudden this voice came up for me that said, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Just do it. And that was like, like it was an awakening in me that that you know that by doing something that was forbidden or that I mm-hmm. thought was forbidden opened something up in me to kind of live to liberate me in a certain way and that was um it was a real revelation for me and that's sort of what I try to do with the people in in my workshops to get to that point and Barbara where do you think you met your main character, what Jonah, Jonah and Jonah, what Jonah knew, and that scary. Was that a scary thing? Was Terrifying. That I, I, you know, I started and stopped writing that book so many times um, because I was, I was really terrified. I mean, there were real life obstacles. I had the germ of the idea, and and I can tell you how I got there um, in the mid nineties when I was assigned a magazine article on past life regression. Um, and, and I can talk about that more, but, and, and I suddenly knew what happened. I knew the climax of the book. I didn't know how to get there, but as I worked on it, I mean, it's the story of two mothers and their sons. They're strangers at the start of the novel. Their lives overlap in improbable, uncanny, and sort of mystical ways. And it possessed me, but, and there, there were real life obstacles moving, doing other projects, other deadlines. But really, and, and this is, you know, tags on to what Hugh was saying, the biggest obstacle to completing the book was my own fear. Mm-hmm. Um, my own, you know, the novel deals with very profound questions of life and death. And I had to take a really deep dive into those questions. Um, I had to look at things I'd been terrified to look at, including my own terror of death. Um, and it, it took a kind of courage that for a long time, at times I wasn't sure I had, and sort of piggybacking also on what Barbara Kaufman said to Hugh, you know, I always think of Dorothy Allison, who wrote Bastard Out of Carolina. Mm-hmm. Her advice is always to write the thing you're most afraid of. And in a sense, I did write the thing I was most afraid of. Um, so, yeah, fear Fear is definitely a part of it, but in a way, I found working with that fear and creating rituals. Every day I would start with meditation and prayers and and asking that the work itself would serve and just kind of creating a space in which I felt safe to go deep into those places that I was scared of. I want to say that I was I was really struck when I was watching Barbara go through all this. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by um you know her persistence on the one hand which was which was really impressive to me. Um but also that you know that once she kind of got tuned into this process she would uh we would you know we'd often have meetings about you know at certain points of the book and we'd figure she'd come to an obstacle where she didn't know which way to go with it and we'd discuss everything and i'd say oh my god i don't know what she's going to do with this and then by and she said well let me go talk to my characters <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and by the end of the day, she would show me something. She'd write something and I'd say, oh, my God, how, where did that come from? But that's a little bit about what it's, what it's about. Yeah, it's very much the process is allowing, you know, you have a bit of a map, you have a bit of the kind of path that you were talking about, but then allowing the not knowing and and to come in and just sort of allowing whatever arises to arise the mm-hmm. same way you do in meditation. I, I you know I just had a um I just listened to a, a talk by a novelist named um Moshin Hamid, a wonderful novelist, and he said that everyone thinks that writing a novel is like climbing up a mountain. And he said, but my way of thinking about it is it's like digging a well, a kind of well of time where you go to every day for two or three hours and you just kind of consult with the with the well. <laughs> and it was mm. and that's sort of like watching Barbara work was sort of like that. It was interesting to see in, in motion. That is interesting, you know, because you I always took note of the fact that you were a writer and an editor because it had been like even my childhood dream was to write. And then all of a sudden you were a painter. And I thought, wait a minute, how'd that happen? You know, like <laughs> did you venture out of your known terrain? Or but it sounds like you were you were trained in it. You had you'd gone. Well, I was trained in it. I, I you know actually when I was um you know when I was in high school I had a had a teacher who decided, her name was Mary Toomey, I was in the 10th grade, and she decided that I was going to be a great writer. Okay. And so she she did all these things to make me a writer, which was really interesting. But one of the things she did was she took me out to hear famous writers talk. And one day she um, took me to a lecture at Boston College with a famous Irish short story writer named Sean O'Fuelan. And... Um, it was interesting. And he, he wrote, you know, and, and she said, bring your, bring your writing, bring your writing. And here I'm like a sophomore in high school and here's the great man. And she brought me backstage and he took my folder of writing. I never thought I'd hear from him again. Uh-huh. And he wrote me a very nice letter a couple weeks later. And he said to me, you evidently have the itch good and strong. And, uh, you know, you make me feel that you have a graphic gift. And then at one point, he said, you know, you know, I think you have to start, you know, I, I'm sure most of the writing that I did was like filled with, you know, teenage kind of grandiosity. And, um, and he said to me, um, what you have to do is stop allowing, stop luxuriating in yourself and look at the paintings of Goya, El Greco, and Rembrandt. Mm. and uh, see what they have to tell you. And what he was saying to me was, you know, you know, there's, I, have a, I have a friend who's a, a, a music producer. His name is Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm. And he likes to say that the key to creativity is looking deeply. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sean O'Fallon was telling me. And uh, it just happened that I lost the letter. My father put the letter. He was so thrilled that I got this letter. He put it, he hid it. We had like a a house full of books and he put it in one of the books and then forgot which book he put in. (laughs) And and while I was studying, I decided when I was in my early fifties, I decided I'm going to start painting. And, uh, and I was, I was in the middle of painting and just by chance, those were the painters I was attracted to. People in you know you know Goya particularly, and um, and I you know why during that period I found the letter and was like inspired again by this letter and that's so that that's you know why I got into art and that's why I you know I'm I'm still very much into art. But in in a way, it's all about looking. I remember the poet Gary Snyder talking about if you want to learn how to write go out and study the natural world, look at, look at trees, look at animals, look at birds, look at the, you know, really learn the natural world and learn to name things and deeply enter into, into that world. Mm. And, and it's, and also it's not just looking, no, it's tasting and feeling all the sensual experience. That's really important. 
Barbara, I'm especially interested, of course, I mean, a novel is such an awesome um, achievement in my mind. And, uh, you know, what you were listening to deeply in in that process, because um, I think we do have to listen deeply. And uh, you've, you've created a being. It's like another child, you know? <laughs> it is. Oh, God, it is. Mm-hmm. It is. And it really came out of... In, in the mid-90s, I got this assignment from Self Magazine to write an article about past life regression therapy. And mm-hmm. I, so I, I went and I signed up for a workshop, not, and nothing happened in the workshop. It was in New York on the Upper West Side. It was with this Jungian analyst who was an expert in this field. Um, but I had to write the story. So other people were having big experiences, nothing for me. So I made a, I had a private session with him and I walked in and I said, you know, I'm sorry, but I will probably be your first failure as a hypnotic uh, subject because I'm non-hypnotizable. The next thing I knew, I, I suddenly had this vision, this scene came to me. I don't know how I got there of the Holocaust and watching a woman. I took to be myself during this time being thrown into a mass grave and shot. And it was Mm. horrific, distressing. I cried for days and days afterward, but I I didn't know what to make of it. You know, I I had always, since I was a kid, been obsessed with the Holocaust, but uh, how did I know if my vision was, there was something to it or it was my imagination? And I was really distressed by it. And a few days later, I went to see my own wonderful therapist, our friend, Mark Epstein. Mm-hmm. And and Mark handed me a book by Ian Stevenson, who was then a, he was the chief of psychiatry at the University of Virginia Medical School. And for decades, Stevenson had been studying young children who start speaking spontaneously of a previous life. And they know details, names, places, dates, the names of family members, all kinds of things. He'd accumulated about 2,500 cases, but the thing that was most uh, striking and blew me away was that these children who begin speaking about at between the ages of about two and four, when they start talking, really, started, talked most significantly about how they died. And in the very majority of the cases, they had died suddenly and violently. So, and and many of them had phobias associated with the manner of death. If somebody, you know, a, a young kid was terrified of water, they may have spoken of, of drowning. So mm-hmm. this stuff, this material just blew me away. Some of them even had birthmarks corresponding in this lifetime corresponding mm-hmm. to a wound. It, it was as if they had PTSD symptoms, many of them, but carried over from a previous lifetime. Now, if you know, what to make of it? You can't you can't do controlled clinical trials of you know people who are living, you know, and using a control as of dead people or vice versa. So that's sort of impossible. But the the evidence was compelling, but it completely fired my imagination. And mm-hmm. I knew I had to write this book. And this book gripped me like nothing has ever gripped me. Mm-hmm. It sort of owned me. I tried not to write it sometimes mm-hmm. because I was so scared of it and so scared of, you know, I'm writing about life and death and the possibility of rebirth and so it was um it it was a monumental thing to do for me to go into these places. Well, I'm so glad you did because of course that's what helps everyone else go into these places and uh you know it's not a belief system that's common in in the west but um many things are not common in the west that are you right. know you kind of right. up against well, them. Also, around the time I was writing the book, I was hearing uh, and, and doing some retreats with a lot of Tibetan Buddhist teachers, mm-hmm. and they talk about 
past and future lives like last Thanksgiving and exactly. you know, the yeah. next Fourth yeah. of July. So that was, you know, so that was also came into it. And, and so I had the, my own experience of this memory or whatever it was in this past life regression combined with Ian Stevenson's work. And then, um, hearing all these Tibetan Buddhist teachers talking. Um, so it, it all just came into my head kind of like a download, but, you know, one thing I, I, that, that I really have come away with it, um, and that people, people are, seem to be very interested in it, at least readers that I've, I've heard from. And, um, and a number of people, surprisingly to me, I, I wasn't really expecting it, have told me that reading the book has really helped them process loss and grief, mm-hmm. um, which means everything because I really tried to tell this story in a way that was true to the degree that I could possibly make it true and accurately reflect Stevenson's work and just raise the questions mm-hmm. um, ab- about the possibility of, of rebirth. Um, but, but in a certain way, the, the thing that for me is really most important about it, if mm-hmm. you consider the possibility of rebirth, is how we live now. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. It, it it extends the impact that we have, how we live now, how we treat one another, how we treat our planet. And it's, you know, it's, so it really comes back to Dharma teachings and the present moment mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. how we, you know, treat each other with loving kindness and compassion and, and all of that. So in a funny way, it's like circling in a, in a way that seems pretty far out, but really coming back to right where we are. Mm. Yes. That's beautiful. It's very hard. I know. And I know you both know, you know, so well, it's like you're talking about the deepest values on which one can base a lifetime. And then we've got commerce, you know, yeah, you got, you got those years and, and needing to support yourself, or needing to find another way of making money, or hoping this would be a success because that is what presages, you know, future opportunities. Yeah, and, um, I had to work on this book in a way that I didn't know if I would ever sell it, and I didn't know, or I, I was determined that the book would be published, but. Honestly, as recently as a year and a half ago, I I thought, okay, I will I will self-publish this book. I if this book I needed to write it. So I think and yeah. in, in going to any kind of creative dev, endeavor from my point of view and it may not jibe with how you earn a living, but mm-hmm. it's bringing what you love and care about and and going with that, knowing that it, you know, it it may do nothing. It may bupkis. I had a book like that once. I read a book like that once too. <laughs> you read bupkis? <laughs> Actually, I did. I read bupkis. I still get the, uh, um, you know, twice twice a year statements. And they always have a minus sign in them. You know? Right. <laughs> That's 20 years ago. So it's yeah. like, but can I say I'm sorry I read it? Never, ever. You know, it was absolutely. There's, there's a line in the um, there's a line in the Bhagavad Gita that says that you you never you can't be guaranteed for the fruits of your labor. Yeah. yeah. Only the process of doing it. I mean, that's a I bungled that translation, but <laughs> no, that's, that, that's the basic idea is that you can you can you have the joy of make of creating. But you don't have, you, and know, I, you can't count on you know making money at it. I, I kind of <laughs> had to go there at a certain point because, you know, I just had to in order to be able to serve the work itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you just have to. I mean, it's like I'm so glad I wrote that book, and which is faith, by the way. Trusting yeah. your own deepest experience. Mm-hmm. I know all about that <laughs> and, book. I, and, uh, I love that book. I recently. You. 
uh, lent my copy to Sylvia Borstein. <laughs> she wanted to read it again. It's funny, but it, I was just like that. I had to write the book. I was compelled to write the book. Mm-hmm. And after publishing house to write the book. And if I had an agent to write a book, everyone's like, it's so huge. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. But I could not do it. So Yeah, yeah. And 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 it's so clear from the book that that, that you had to write that book. Yeah. 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 Beautifully so. Thank you yeah. so much. And yeah. Hugh, I wanted to extend that because you, you also have more than a foot, you have a very rich history in the world of sports because mm-hmm. you know, being an editor at Sports Illustrated and the books you've co-authored with um, Phil Jackson and I'm really interested in the role of mindfulness because so many people in every realm, you know, business and journalism and all kinds of places say to me, I'm kind of reluctant to take on meditation because I think I'm going to make, it's going to make me lose my edge. I'm going to be a little blah, you know, I'm going to settle for what's mediocre. Uh, It's that same kind of grayed out image that we started this conversation with. And uh, I would think in the world of sports, which is so insanely competitive, uh, it comes up, and I know George Mumford, of course, and we have taught together at different times, and, and it's been so beautiful because um, when I say to him, like, how do you describe loving kindness? He'll say, well, maybe uh-huh. I don't use those words exactly. You know? uh-huh. And I say, well, what do you say? And first, he was quiet. He said, I said, don't be hating. Don't be hating on yourself. Don't be hating on others. <laughs> and then he said, it's Phil Jackson's uh, ethos was so much about being part of a team. He mm-hmm. said, you come out of that way too, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, that was really important. And, and somebody in the audience always says, how do you get like brilliant superstars, like those players to think like a team? And George always says, cause that's how you win. Uh-huh. But also it's, you know, it's interesting uh, with, with Michael Jordan and, and some of the other superstars as well. But Michael was a classic example. I mean, he, his, what he loved was being able not only to be to play basketball, but to do it together with a group of guys that he knew, and he um, they knew really intimately, and and, mm-hmm. and feel that kind of intimacy um, with other men. And um, the, you know, it, it, it's interesting because it was you know when when my when Phil, you know, when he took over the Chicago Bulls, and he. What was happening there, and it's related to this idea of creativity. What 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 basically was happening in basketball at that time was a kind of celebration of individual creativity, which started with Dr. J and some of the other great you know creative superstars. But Michael was kind of the epitome of that. And so with the Chicago Bulls, what they had at that time, which was in the eighties, I guess it was um, they. It was called Michael Jordan and the Jordanaires. Mm-hmm. And so Michael Jordan would do his incredible things with basketball, and he and which were pretty incredible. And then the other four guys would just stand around and look, and which you know which worked during the regular season, but during the playoffs they would just get clobbered because what mm-hmm. teams would do, especially the, the Detroit Pistons, is that they would quadruple team Michael Jordan mm-hmm. because they knew he wasn't going to pass it to anybody. And, uh, and so what Phil decided to do was to give a, create an environment where everybody on the team could be creative in their own way. And he did that by one, creating a system of basketball called the triangle offense, which involved moving the ball around in certain ways. And so that everybody had a, had a, a part in it. They couldn't just stand there and watch Michael Jordan. The second thing was to teach the players mindfulness because it calmed them down, but it also gave them a sense of, um, it kind of bound the team together. It was like Phil talked about it as being uh, one one team, one breath. Mm-hmm. And um, the third thing he did was was he built kind of Native American wisdom into into the into the game, which he had, you know, if you went to their 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 team room, it was just filled with relics from Native American tribes all over the mm-hmm. all over the country, but particularly in the Midwest. And um and what that does with he they and the players really resonated that with that, this sort of path of the selfless warrior. 
And he did that to build this sense of compassion on the, on the team of the players bonding together. And I, um, what was interesting, an important moment about this that I, I, I discovered was when, when Michael Jordan went away to play baseball and then he came back to play basketball again. And during the first, first practice they had, he got into a fist fight with Steve Kerr, who is mm. now coach of, of the Golden mm-hmm. State Warriors and one of the great coaches in basketball. And, um, and you know, Steve, called, Steve Kerr was the smallest guy on the team. He was kind of scrawny. And he was taking on Michael Jordan, of all people. And what happened in that process of that is they then resolved that, you know, and they... And Michael said he learned that he really had, while he was away playing baseball, he had lost touch with the team. Mm. And when he came back, he realized he had to really get to know intimately all the players on the team in, you know, in the way that he had known the team before. And, and for, for Kerr, it was one, taking on Michael, standing up to Michael Jordan was a big deal and and he won Jordan's respect and then all of a sudden Jordan started passing him the ball and and, and as a result Steve Kerr won the winning shot in a couple of championships mm. and um, so one one thing that's interesting when this idea of compassion in sports I think of um, Bill Russell who was this, you know a great basketball player for the Boston Celtics in my view, the greatest basketball ever, best player to ever play, and who died just recently. And he used to say that when he was in a championship game, he would root for the other team because he wanted to the teams, everybody, to have the highest level of experience, you know, the most fulfilling level of experience, mm-hmm. and not just win the game. And it was interesting that so he was looking at it on, on a higher, even a more spiritual level of trying to have this kind of peak experience together with a group of 10 men. And that was that was really interesting to me. And that's and that's how George, I think, you know, would envision compassion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Writing in contrast this seems such a solitary activity, doesn't it? Barbara, right in this moment. It, it, it does, but, um, and yet, and yet it takes a village. And, yeah. and I think almost any creative endeavor, I mean, for me, my inner village, well, there is in my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I happen to have this <laughs> husband who's a, a brilliant editor and, you know, in, in the dedication to the, in the book, in the acknowledgement, I, I wrote that maybe sometimes he wished he'd been a lawyer or a plumber or something else. So, um, but, but we're, we're really able to support one another. I, mm-hmm. I mean, he gets as good as he gives, but then the outer circle that I've experienced. So the writing itself, putting the words down is solitary, but I've had such incredible support from a group of my writer's group of friends, a group of women who've read the manuscript a number of times and all sorts of other people who, you know, given me blurbs or mm-hmm. you who've talked to me on your podcast. And just, it feels like it really takes a village to birth uh, any creative endeavor. And it certainly takes a village to birth a book. And so... Um, and that's wonderful. There are times I miss the kind of collaboration that I had when I worked in the theater, either mm-hmm. as a playwright or a director. And everybody, it is really like a, for a period of time, a very closely knit family. Mm-hmm. But it can it happens in different ways um, with with books, and and that's wonderful. And the other piece of it, the other part of the village is. I've been going out and talking to lots of people and <laughs> that's been wonderful. And so when there's someone receiving it, it doesn't really exist in a way until there's someone to receive it. So, and that's been incredibly rewarding and wonderful. You know, you know um, 
you know, a really good example of this collaboration, I as I'm thinking while you're talking, is that we just saw the movie Hallelujah about mm-hmm. Leonard Cohen, about oh, the song, mm-hmm. the song that he wrote. And I didn't realize this about this song, but it was he wrote it and then the, the Columbia Records decided not to, you know, print the album and you know and then he started singing sort of a secular version of the song when he was in night clay and clubs and stuff but what happened was he but it kind of like the song would have died there and mm-hmm. then he what happened was other people took the song other artists like one guy, Jeff forget, Buckley. Jeff Buckley came and did this incredibly evocative version, which was a combination of the spiritual, piece, you know, song that he originally wrote, that Cohen originally wrote, and some of the stuff he was singing, the secular version, which was all about love making and all that, merged them together into this incredible song, and then the director, the director of Shrek. Mm-hmm. The movie, the animated movie, they decided to run, the, the, use the song, and then they toned it down a little bit, took out some of the s- sexual parts. Mm-hmm. But that made it into like, it was became it, this right. big major hit. And it was because of this collaboration of people right. along, you know, with um, something that could have died. And he wrote 150 verses. He wrote it for a really long time. And I mean, his story is so interesting because it wasn't really until he, I mean, he was kind of a cult figure, but it wasn't really until he lost all of his money. He'd been up in the monastery for six years on Mount Baldy, lost all of his money, um, and then had to go out and start performing again when he was in his 70s mm. and became, did the, I don't know if you saw any of the shows. We happened to see two of them, so luckily. And they were, it was like being in, in some very incredibly sacred experience. Um, they were just magnificent. And so... In a way, I feel like I'm not comparing myself to Leonard Cohen. I published my first novel at age 74. It's sort of, you know, it's the thing that I wanted to do my whole life was write novels and have been able to do it now. It's pretty, pretty crazy. And that's going to be inspiring to thousands and thousands of people who have the same idea. I hope so. Yeah. I, I, no, it's I true. Hope so. It's really true. And Barbara, you saved me. I was about to tell a story about Jonathan Larson. And, and I thought, oh. oh, thank goodness she told a story about the itchy and you told a story about yeah. Leonard Cohen instead. <laughs> Save me from that inevitable comparison. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it it's pretty amazing. Um, it's pretty amazing. And, and it's about really trusting one's own like you had to write faith, that yeah, sense yeah. of longing that that there's something that needs to come out. I actually have this cartoon on my desk that's been here the entire time I've written this book. It's an old New Yorker cartoon, and it's a uh, drawing of a guy sitting in his underwear in a doctor's office looking really scared and really worried. And the doctor in his white coat and stethoscope is standing and looming above him and looking very serious. And the line is, I'm afraid that novel in you has got to come out. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how I felt with what Jonah knew. It, yeah. it had to come out, um, as Faith did for you. And, yeah. and really was just trusting that there was something here that I followed, whether or not it was going to reach the world or not. So there's some, there's some creative impulse, whatever it is that I think um, it's, it's how we make sense of the world and how we know ourselves and one another, I think is, are following those impulses, even if they seem, crazy or you're too old and who's yeah, going to publish yeah, the first yeah. novel of, you know, somebody who's 74 yeah, years old. Like I'm gonna be. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, there's a thing about, um, 
there's a, there's a writer named um, Newberg who wrote this really terrific book about being an artist. And he um, talks about that in the first half of life, you're writing for, you know, if you're a writer, you're writing to be the kind of writing what you want to become. But in the, the second half of life, you're writing from who you are. Mm. And that's and that's what that's why so many great novels are written, great novels and great masterpieces are painted, et cetera, and and you know, you know, music written, you know, in later life because it has a different depth to it. It's yeah. about, you know, the the artist talking from deep within, you know, and not just projecting on what he or she wanted to be, wants to be. And that's um and I think that's what you've done. And uh, so did Leonard Cohen. <laughs> that's right. And, and very, very oddly, uh, well, not oddly, sort of wonderfully, about a week ago, I had this dream. And, and we, Hugh and I were at some party and, you know, we were about to leave. But then I saw in the corner, sitting on the floor, Leonard Cohen, surrounded by some people. And they were talking. I said, we can't leave yet. I've got to go talk to Leonard. Mm-hmm. And I went and I said, Leonard, I've just had this novel come out and my nerves are really frayed. I, I just don't know what to do. And he, he just smiled and looked at me and basically said, chill, honey, don't worry. It's all fine. Oh. Um, it, was, it was a great dream. Well, that's a great dream. That was, that was before <laughs> I saw Hallelujah. Oh, that is so great. Really, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing your dream in so many ways. Yeah. And now, because we're coming toward the close of our time here, I'm wondering, um, I think it's going to be he, right, who's going to lead us in a meditation to close out uh-huh. with? Great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Okay, so I wanna, what I wanted to say about this is that, um, you know, there's been a lot of research about creativity, and, and one of the things that they've discovered is that um, uh, that the one personality characteristic that um, – you know, the creative, highly creative people have is uh, an openness to experience. And um, there are these researchers in, in Holland who did a, they're trying to figure out what is the most effective kind of uh, meditation uh, for creativity. And they, um, they basically decided that um, open, open awareness form of meditation you know, where you can tap into all of the experience that you're going through or coming up for you uh, during the meditative experience was more effective, and it relates back to what we were talking about before, um, than, um, you know, than what, you know, what's known as concentrative uh, uh, meditation where you're focusing on one object like a mantra or just focusing on the breath. And they also found that, you know, that that kind of concentrative meditation can be effective when you're, you know, like at the very end of the process, when you're trying to edit what you've done or something like that, where you have a tightly focused job. But when you're, you're trying to create something that comes up from within, it's, it's, it's much more effective uh, to, to practice open awareness meditation. So I'd like, um, I'd like, that's what we're going to get a little taste of here. Um, so I'd like everyone to uh, find a, a comfortable posture, sort of where you're relaxed and alert. And uh, the way I like to talk about being upright, but not uptight. And again, let's begin with taking a full in-breath, and a long out-breath. Allow your breath to settle down and find its natural rhythm. Let the breath Breathe itself. Try not to interfere with the process. Notice how your body is reacting 
to the breathing. Your belly rising and then falling. Your chest expanding and then relaxing. Now gently expand your awareness to include the sounds in the room. What are you hearing right now? Sounds are the perfect object for mindfulness because the sounds are always in the present, not the past or the future. Letting go of any ideas you might have about the sounds, where they're coming from, what they are and just being with the direct experience of listening. Fall into open, spacious receptivity. Now shift and bring your awareness to your body sensations. What are you feeling in your body right now? Are you feeling energized, stressful, tired, calm, or alive? Notice how the sensations change when you focus on them with bare attention. Whatever you're experiencing, See if you can allow it to be just as it is. Resting in awareness without trying to change anything.
Now expand your awareness to include any thoughts that may arise. Notice how your thoughts dissolve as you shine awareness on them. Observe the difference between being lost in thought and being aware of thinking. Imagine your thoughts as clouds passing through a sky of awareness. rather than seeing them as just distractions. Observe how everything can be included in awareness. Notice the quality of awareness itself, the capacity to know clearly one's experience. If you find yourself drifting, relax back and listen to the sounds in the room. and feel sensations moving through you. Let life live through you, moment by moment, with open awareness. Now you can open your eyes and look around the room. Well, thank you so much for that. That was lovely. And thank you for joining me today. To learn more about these two lovely human beings, you can visit barbaragrampauthor.com. That's B-A-R-B-A-R-A-G-R-A-H-A-M-A-U-T-H-O-R.com or udelahunty.com. H-U-G-H-D-E-L-E-H. A-N-T-Y.com. Thank you to everyone who's listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.